High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, MGM Stories. As you may know if you've been listening to previous episodes, every episode in this series has been inspired by a submission made by a listener on our forum, which you can find at You Must Remember This Podcast. Today's episode came from a post made by Megan, who called into the remember phone with this message. Hi, Karina. This is Megan coming to you from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. I'm a big fan of your program, and I would love for you to do an episode on the fascinating story of Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. Their real-life romance and their on-screen pairings are just the stuff of Hollywood legends. And aside from that, their individual careers stand out during such an important time in film history. Thanks so much, and keep up the awesome pod. Bye. Thanks, Megan. Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy's relationship is certainly legendary. The two met in 1942 and kept up a relationship for the rest of Tracy's life through the production of nine Tracy Hepburn movies and ups and downs in both performers' careers— even as Tracy remained married to his wife, Louise. Because of that, both Tracy and Hepburn took pains to hide their off-screen partnership from the press. In the years after Tracy and his wife's death, 
Hepburn confirmed the romance and helped to mythologize it by writing about it at length in her memoirs. After Hepburn's death, some biographers stepped in to debunk her version of the story. The most recent biography of Hepburn contends that the affair with Tracy was a cover story used to draw attention away from both Hepburn and Tracy's homosexuality. The most recent Tracy biography strenuously disputes that notion, while also painting the 25 years Hepburn and Tracy spent in one another's lives as less than perfectly smooth sailing. We may never know exactly what went on in Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy's separate bedrooms, but we do know that they were very close off-screen, and that each of their on-screen legacies is defined in large part by the films they made together. Because this is a series called MGM Stories, and MGM was Spencer Tracy's professional home for most of his career, today we're going to situate Tracy's relationship with Hepburn within the context of his time at MGM. In order to do that, we have to talk about how Tracy ended up at MGM, his relationship with his wife Louise, his drinking, and the affairs with other beautiful actresses which predated Tracy's involvement with Hepburn and interrupted it. Join us, won't you, for the story of Spencer Tracy at MGM. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from inland Oregon who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. Louise Tracy didn't even want her husband to go to Hollywood. Tracy had met his wife when both were coming up in regional theater, and they had married in 1921. By 1930, though her own career had been pushed to the back burner after giving birth to their son, John, who was born deaf, Louise was proud of her husband, who had risen over the course of a decade from Midwestern stock companies to the top of the Broadway scene. She didn't approve of Hollywood, didn't respect movies, and didn't want to see her husband throw away the hard work of ten years for the empty promises of movie stardom. But their son John was chronically ill, and Fox Studios was offering $750 a week for the first year and $1,000 a week for the second. So, in January 1931, Tracy signed a contract, and Louise went house hunting. Tracy would become one of 20th century Hollywood's most notorious alcoholics. But drinking hadn't been a problem for him in the theater. Louise would say that he started drinking in Hollywood because he felt awkward in social situations. But she soon realized that alcohol seemed to affect her husband in a unique way. 
He could drink the least little bit, and it simply went straight to the brain, Louise would say. I gradually saw that he really shouldn't drink at all. As Tracy's months in Hollywood stretched into years, he only found more reasons to seek refuge in the bottle. He didn't have a high opinion of the movies he was making, but the bare minimum cost of supporting his family, which would include a second child by 1932, meant he was trapped doing what he was doing in order to make a comparatively high Depression-era salary. The first time Tracy's drinking became a problem for his work happened while shooting The Power and the Glory, directed by William Howard and written by Preston Sturges. In the middle of filming, Tracy disappeared. Days later, Bing Crosby stumbled upon Tracy drunk in Mexico. Spence's brother Carol was sent down to pick him up, and Howard covered for the actor with the studio. One night, a drunken Tracy crashed his car across the street from the House of Francis, the Sunset Boulevard brothel run by Madame Lee Francis. The police were called, and Tracy was so belligerent that they had to use physical restraints. Tracy's biographer, James Curtis, casts doubt on the long-standing reports that Tracy was a regular of Francis's establishment. He quotes Joe Minkowitz, who said that Tracy was, quote, much too busy with the ladies. If there was ever an actor who had no reason ever to go to a whorehouse, it was Spencer Tracy. In any case, no one disputes that Tracy crashed his car in close proximity to a whorehouse because it was well-documented. In the newspaper the next day, Tracy acknowledged a crisis, which he blamed on his fish-out-of-water status in Los Angeles. It only made sense that a fish would take to water by drinking. To be suddenly the center of a group that was brilliant and rich and worldly was fascinating to me, Tracy said. The women were gay and beautiful always. They wore furs and jewels and creations in the evening. We dressed for dinner. I'd never done that. We had cocktails in the afternoon and champagne with food and liquors afterward and highballs in the evening. I forgot all the precepts upon which I had built my life, accepted all the attitudes and philosophies that I despised for so many years. In the summer of 1933, Tracy moved into an apartment at the Chateau Elysee, a residential hotel for actors, which is now the home of the Scientology Celebrity Center. The move was ostensibly so that Tracy could concentrate on preparing for his new movie, Man's Castle. But by August 30th, Tracy had confirmed in the press that he and Louise were having marital problems. Mrs. Tracy and I are still excellent friends, and perhaps living apart for a while will lead to a reunion. By this point, Man's Castle had wrapped. The story of a romance between two transients living in a Manhattan Hooverville, Man's Castle pitted Tracy's dapper hobo opposite Loretta Young. Both Catholics, Young and Tracy had an interesting meet-cute. Legend has it that she heard him mutter, damn, under his breath on the set, and asked him for a quarter for her cuss jar. Tracy gave her a $20 bill and said, Here's 20, sister. Go fuck yourself. Of course, after a line like that, it didn't take long for 20-year-old Young to fall for her 33-year-old co-star. Tracy would later remember their romance started after an afternoon when Loretta invited him over to the house she shared with her mother for a beer. We talked and had a lot of laughs. It was pleasant. 
It was fun. Life seemed sort of decent again. Young made him feel good in the short term, but in the long term, she triggered his insecurities. Knowing he was not conventionally handsome and having put up with Louise badgering him for years about his weight, Tracy didn't see himself as a romantic idol on screen or off. After playing Joan Bennett's lover in a film called She Wanted a Millionaire, Tracy complained, I should be playing mugs because that's what I look like. Later, of young, Tracy would say, The idea that such a gorgeous person, so sophisticated, so capable of having any man in the world she wanted, should prefer me, it was just too much. He was also convinced that God was watching him, and all too eager to punish him for his missteps. The fact that his son John was deaf, Tracy believed, was the direct consequence for Tracy's own sins, chief among them his infidelities. But the fact that both of them were Catholic and both understood that what they were doing was a mortal sin brought Young and Tracy closer together. They both equally understood that they would never marry because Spence would not get a divorce and Loretta would not marry a divorced man. The quagmire drove Tracy to drink more. After a multi-day binge ruined a trip he was supposed to take with Young, he tearfully, drunkenly told her, He wouldn't do this to himself if he could only marry her. Spencer Tracy and Loretta Young conducted their romance out in the open. They went to church together every Sunday morning, and sometimes on Saturdays, too. They went to dinner and to nightclubs and to Palm Springs and on vacation with Mr. and Mrs. John Wayne. If the relationship itself was extremely public, so was the impasse keeping Tracy triangulated between two women. Tracy spoke at length about the relationship to reporters. I am a Catholic, you see. Loretta is a Catholic. And so on account of all these complications, it would honestly be rather ridiculous and wholly untrue for me to attempt to make a definite statement. Our personal emotions have nothing to do with what we can do. The way I feel about Loretta must be pretty obvious. We haven't tried to hide or beat around the bush or camouflage anything. We have nothing to be ashamed of. This is, honestly, our past and our present. The future is not entirely in our hands. There is nothing we can do about it but wait and hope. By June 1934, God came as close to issuing a verdict on the affair as he was ever going to, when Loretta Young confessed the affair to a priest and was denied immediate absolution. At the priest's recommendation, she started attending weekly counseling sessions. Within two weeks, her relationship with Tracy was over. Tracy sequestered himself in a suite at the Beverly Wilshire and began a drinking binge that would stretch over weeks, ending with Tracy hospitalized and his Fox contract suspended. When he then disappeared from the set of his next film, Marie Gallant, the studio sued him for the cost of having to postpone the picture. A deal was worked out that would have a huge chunk of Tracy's wages garnished until he paid Fox back in what Variety described as the most severe penalty ever imposed on a film player for holding up production. By December 1934, it looked like a chastened Tracy was back on his best behavior and back with Louise. The couple bought a ranch in the San Fernando Valley in which to reunite their family. It's unclear exactly what happened next. There are many conflicting stories. But in the spring of 1935... 
Tracy's contract at Fox was terminated. Decades later, Tracy himself would blame his drinking. He did go on a bender in March 1935 after a polo accident. When Louise tracked him down in Yuma, Spence threw a cabinet full of dishes at a wall and was arrested and jailed for being drunk and resisting an officer, cursing and breaking things up in a hotel room. This, as the last on a long list of incidents instigated by Tracy while he was under contract to Fox, may have seemed like cause for dismissal. But there are also indications that Spence quit before he could be fired, because his agent had somehow convinced Irving Thalberg to sign Tracy at MGM. By the time MGM signed Tracy, he was more than damaged goods. Critics liked him, but he was not a proven box office star. Although you could say this was because at Fox, he was forced into producing quantity over quality. But in terms of budgets and schedules, he was clearly a proven liability. So why was MGM even interested? Here are three things to consider. In 1935, MGM was actively trying to expand the number of stars on its roster, and they were in need of leading men. Also, Louis B. Mayer genuinely believed in Tracy's talent. And finally, Mayer and Thalberg were well aware of both Tracy's middling successes at Fox and his spectacular problems. But they thought they could fix him. And they were right. After signing with MGM in 1935, Tracy soon became the beneficiary of the studio's classic star-making strategies. Tracy was first placed in second banana roles opposite the studio's biggest female stars, in Whipsaw with Myrna Loy and Riff Raff with Jean Harlow, to reintroduce him to audiences. Then came his leading man debut with the Fritz Lang film Fury, and the one-two punch of major hits San Francisco and Captain's Courageous. Tracy was nominated for Oscars for both, and won for Captain's, in which he wore bronzer and affected an accent to play a Portuguese fisherman. He won again a year later for playing Father Flanagan in Boys Town, a quintessential MGM family values picture which almost single-handedly kept the film industry afloat during a very tough box office year, and through which Tracy developed a strong emotional attachment to the real priest his character was based on. This was all in his first three years at MGM, and by the end of it, Tracy was, for the first time, a legitimate star. Tracy was the first to give the studio credit for reinventing his career, and Louis B. Mayer was the first to take the credit. He said, We signed him, found just the right stories for him, and he became Spencer Tracy, the star, not Spencer Tracy, the actor. We did that. No drama school did. We did it with the stories we picked for him, with cameras and lights and music and a hundred tricks. Tracy was initially on his best behavior at MGM. He didn't have much of a personal relationship with Mayer, but he grew very close to Eddie Mannix, who Tracy didn't want to disappoint. He showed up ready to work every day, and in December 1935, he went on the wagon. But in late summer of 1937, in the midst of his first flush of A-list stardom, Tracy's sobriety broke. So began a pattern that would last for decades. Tracy would manage to stay sober for months or even years at a time, 
And then he'd take one drink, and that was it. Because he couldn't just have a drink. One drink would turn into a binge of a few days or weeks that would set him back to square one. Tracy became notorious at local bars, to the point where MGM publicist Howard Strickling set up an elaborate damage control operation. If a bartender suspected that Tracy was about to enter the danger zone, he was given a number to call, and a fake ambulance and fake paramedics would be dispatched from MGM to go to the bar, strap Tracy onto a gurney, and take him home. In New York in 1938, after a dry seven months, he literally destroyed the bar at the Lambs Club and managed to continue drinking in the wreckage of broken alcohol bottles for six days, standing up the whole while because he knew the club wouldn't kick out any member who remained on his feet. When he finally collapsed, Tracy was put into an MGM ambulance and taken to the Newark airport, where he had to be put on a private plane back to L.A. Upon arriving, he disappeared for nearly a week and was found passed out in his polo stable. He was taken to the hospital, and the doctor told Louise that if he kept it up, he'd be dead in five years. Eventually, Tracy would learn to avoid bars altogether and confine his binges to hotel rooms. Tracy's drinking was inextricably wrapped up in his Catholic guilt and his self-loathing. It was something he struggled with and hated about himself, but he was also drawn to self-punishment. It's possible his inability to remain faithful to Louise also played into the cycle of guilt and self-punishment, but he also seemed to get genuine pleasure from pursuing women. He had an affair with Joan Crawford on the set of their film Mannequin, he unsuccessfully chased Myrna Loy for years, and he began a serious romance with the married Ingrid Bergman while they were filming Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Spence and Louise were still living together at their Encino ranch, but they had begun keeping different hours and separate lives. She was very busy with a clinic for deaf children that she was establishing, named after their son John, and she took her own vacations. In his wife's absence, Tracy's romance with Bergman progressed steadily. But his next movie would change everything. Garson Kanan had conceived Woman of the Year as a love letter to Katharine Hepburn, who in the late 1930s he was trying to romance with great difficulty. Hepburn was able to set up the script at MGM, where she had just made her career-resurrecting hit, The Philadelphia Story. Hepburn was essentially secretly producing her movies at this point. She was working tirelessly during the script development stage to shape each film. In Woman of the Year, Hepburn would play a sophisticated political columnist attracted to her opposite, a salt-of-the-earth sports reporter. Tracy was Hepburn's choice for the sports reporter because to her he represented the epitome of the American male of the time. But Hepburn believed Tracy barely knew who she was. Tracy did know who she was, but he wasn't exactly impressed. He had heard she was a diva and suspected she was a lesbian. When they were first introduced on the MGM lot, Hepburn lived up to her ballbuster reputation, looking Tracy up and down and derisively commenting on his height. But Tracy agreed to make Woman of the Year because Philadelphia's story had shown a new side of her, the soft center under the granite exterior, 
the vulnerable woman who really craved a man who could tell her what to do. This would become the essence of the Hepburn and Tracy on-screen dynamic. She would play a liberated woman, often one enjoying some kind of success in a man's world, whose capability and independence were initially attractive to the man, but eventually her stubbornness and inability or unwillingness to subjugate her own needs and desires to her mates would become a turnoff. Her regret in the face of his admonishment and punishment would bring the couple back together. In the minds of Hepburn's male collaborators like Garson Kanan, this transformation needed to happen not to appease men, but to satisfy the women in the audience. Catherine could spend most of a movie living a fantasy of female perfection and achievement that was perhaps consciously or otherwise longed for by some female viewers, but essentially unattainable to most of them. Only as long as at the end of the film she'd have to submit to at least some of the subjugation and self-sacrifice that defined the average woman's lives. Otherwise, women would resent her, as her press coverage during the 1930s suggested many did. This dynamic invented for the movies was not far from what was going on in real life. The real Hepburn was attracted to the real Tracy because he performed a similar trick. She knew that he would leave her free to be herself, but that he also wasn't afraid to tell her when enough was enough. He was the only person who could tell Kath, as he called her, to shut up. Tracy would bring the quote-unquote womanly side of Hepburn to the fore, on screen as well as off, to the extent that nobody was sure what was the chicken and what was the egg. Was their off-screen relationship captured by the camera, or did the on-screen chemistry bleed off the screen into real life? Hepburn herself would later describe the growing attraction between her and Tracy in language that echoed or conflated the action of Woman of the Year. She remembered taking note of their common freckles, which their characters do as foreplay in the movie. The real Hepburn recalled being so nervous sitting close to Tracy while they were filming the bar scene that she spilled a glass of water and ended up under the table with a napkin, continuing to say her lines as she mopped up. In the movie, the camera cuts to her under the table as she clumsily slash nervously picks up a spilled purse. At this time, Tracy was the top American male box office star. He could have any woman he wanted, and he usually did. By the end of 1941, Tracy was in as serious a relationship with Hepburn as he had been with Loretta Young. But the relationship was unusual. Tracy had ceased living with Louise, but he didn't live with Hepburn either. For years, Tracy took pains to keep his relationship with Hepburn secret from his wife, underestimating Louise's intelligence and assuming that she couldn't figure it out. And then he'd do things either thoughtlessly or self-destructively to rub it in her face. The legend of Hepburn and Tracy was that they couldn't get married because the Catholic Tracy couldn't get a divorce. But that was more true of Tracy's relationship with Loretta Young. His relationship with Hepburn was kept unofficial for many more reasons than that. All things being equal, Hepburn would later claim that while she was totally devoted to Tracy, she was never really sure of how he felt about her and observers of their relationship have suggested that she gave more than she got. 
Certainly there were periods where he didn't act like a guy who was deeply in love with one woman, even if he was married to another. Sometimes he just acted like a prick. On the set of the World War II fantasy, A Guy Called Joe, according to some reports, his sexual harassment of co-star Irene Dunn was constant and ranged from touching her inappropriately to whispering dirty words while they shot a scene in which she sang a sappy song to him. In one take, when directed to embrace Dunn from behind, Tracy reportedly pressed himself so tightly against the actress that she could feel his erection. When she complained to super macho director Victor Fleming, Dunn's concerns were dismissed. You're a good-looking woman, he told her. You should be flattered. So Dunn took her complaints above Fleming's head, directly to Louis B. Mayer. This was a risky move. Tracy was the biggest male star at MGM left since the outbreak of the war, and she was a freelancer who worked where she wished but without the protection of a studio. But Mayer took Dunn's threat to quit the film if Tracy kept on harassing her seriously. That afternoon, Mayer came on set, and after watching rushes of Dunn's performance, he declared, If I'm firing anybody, I'm firing Tracy, not her. Instead, Tracy got a talking to, and the harassment stopped. By this point, Hepburn and Tracy had already made two movies together, but she may have just been getting a sense of what she was getting into. After Woman of the Year, beginning on a visit to New York and continuing in California, after over three years sober, Tracy went on a drinking binge, which lasted 19 days. It was Hepburn's first experience of his drinking, and soon thereafter she arranged for him to have a complete physical checkup. The doctor's report read, in part, He is introspective and says he suffers from vague fear, fear of what he does not know. He adds that part of it, he supposes, is fear of disease. He sleeps poorly, goes to bed early, wakes and reads a while, goes to sleep again, and then wakes about five or six in the morning and gets up. He has been doing this for a long time. He went four years without drinking and then was off on another bout some three months ago. He says the last bout was utter folly. He decided that, not having any alcohol for four years, he could handle it but found that it was impossible for him to do so. At first, Hepburn was convinced that alcohol was something Tracy needed to learn how to live with in moderation. He started trying to just have a couple after a work day, like everyone else. When things would get out of hand, as they seemed to when Tracy was on a USO tour in 1944, and when he and Hepburn were shooting the film Without Love, she would reject the suggestion that he should go to Alcoholics Anonymous, in part because he was too famous to be anonymous. For that same reason, Hepburn wanted Tracy to move out of the Beverly Hills Hotel, where he was prone to binge, but she was also afraid of the scandal that could happen if she were to move him into her house and anyone found out. Tracy began relying on barbiturates to help him sleep, but even though he sometimes took three or four times the recommended dose, they didn't work great for him maybe because he drank coffee and sodas all day long, and also came to rely on dexedrine to cut through the fog of daytime exhaustion. His pill reliance continued during periods when he was off alcohol. Hepburn would say that it was because of Spence's sleep problems that they couldn't live together, or even spend a night in the same bedroom. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service— the more margin you have and the more money you keep. 
obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. But then there's also the fact that when he drank, Spence could get violent. Sometimes it would be like a night at the Sherry Netherland, when every time he drained his martini glass, he'd throw it at the mirror behind the bar. Other times, Tracy would lose control when Hepburn was working in another city, and thus wasn't around to keep him on an even keel. But sometimes, he'd direct his drunken violence at Hepburn. When a friend expressed surprise that Hepburn would stand for that, she reportedly responded, Why, I could hit him back, couldn't I? Years after the fact, Hepburn said that one night in New York, Tracy tried to choke her, and she managed to fight him off and lock him in a closet. An incident which Hepburn's niece disputed, in part because of the bulky Tracy and reed-thin Hepburn's disparity in weight. If Spencer had really wanted to strangle her, said Catherine Houghton, I'm sure he could have succeeded without much difficulty. Tracy went through detox in May 1945 and managed to stay sober for a while. He made a long, threatened return to the theater with a play called The Rugged Path, which turned out to be a disappointment. Tracy's performance was better reviewed than the play, but he realized that after mastering the art of film acting, he now found playing the same part every night to be a bore. He longed to be back at MGM, But on the set of his next film with Hepburn, The Sea of Grass, Tracy told a journalist that he couldn't wait to get back to the stage. Kath was planning to star in As You Like It in New York, and Spence started threatening to go with her. Negotiations with MGM to free up time in Tracy's schedule proceeded to a certain extent, and then there was a meeting in Louis B. Mayer's office involving Tracy's wife, Louise. At that meeting, Louise apparently said, in no uncertain terms... I will be Mrs. Spencer Tracy until the day I die. Shortly after that, Tracy told a journalist that he didn't think he would play a romantic interest to Hepburn in a movie anytime soon. In fact, it would only be about a year because Hepburn happened to be available to step into State of the Union when Claudette Colbert dropped out. Tracy's personal and professional lives were incredibly intermingled, and extremely complicated. 
He was married to Louise, whose life's work was the extremely noble clinic for deaf kids, which was partially funded by Tracy's MGM salary, and by donations brought in by his standing as a major star. He was involved in a serious romantic relationship with Catherine Hepburn, which he would never acknowledge to his wife, even though it was apparent to everyone, and even though his continued standing and ability to draw a high salary at MGM owed in part to the movies he and Hepburn made together. The Sea of Grass, for instance, was a huge hit, reviving Tracy's star power after a year in which he had fallen out of not just the top 10, but the top 20 list of biggest box office stars. Even if he wanted to, which he didn't, he couldn't break it off with Hepburn to go back to his wife because their on-screen romance was too valuable for both of them, and because of his guilt over his son John, he would never leave Louise for Kath, who didn't want to get married anyway. Tracy and Hepburn starred together in Adam's Rib, which many people believe was their best film together, although like most of their movies, it was a hit on the coasts and completely unpalatable to middle America. And then Tracy finally had a massive, demographic-sweeping hit on his own, with Father of the Bride. This would mark the high point of Spencer Tracy's power at MGM. But by then, it was 1951, and Hollywood was changing. MGM said goodbye to its patriarch, Louis B. Mayer, that year, which is a story we'll go into later in the series. But suffice it to say that Tracy was not enamored with the new regime— whose tastes were even stuffier than Mayer's. And over the next few years, the studio stopped being so supportive of unique stars like Tracy who needed special handling. Hepburn's own contract with MGM had lapsed, and now she was only invited back for Tracy vehicles like 1952's Pat and Mike, and was in fact spending much of her time on the stage. They were apart a lot, and Tracy started looking for love elsewhere. He pursued Joan Fontaine, fruitlessly, and then began an affair with Jean Tierney, whose hopes that Kirk Douglas would marry her had been recently dashed. Tracy apparently wrote Tierney a letter promising to marry her, which was probably just a seduction move, but which Tierney then turned around and showed to Douglas in order to try to win him back. Tracy and Tierney were starring together in the film Plymouth Adventure, a mediocre Mayflower movie which forced Tracy to contemplate exactly what it was that he was doing with his career. He longed for the freedom of going freelance, but he still needed the guaranteed pay of his MGM contract, in part to help support his wife's clinic. The only movie he really wanted to make was an adaptation of Ernest Hemingway's The Old Man and the Sea, which kept getting delayed as Tracy dealt with his MGM commitments. Gossip columnists started reporting that Tracy was leaving the studio. And then, in the spring of 1954, Tracy and Hepburn reunited in London, and while there, a London tabloid ran with a story about the secret romance of Spencer and Katie. The article got a few things wrong, but it was right in spirit, and now neither of them could pretend like their relationship was secret. Back in the States, Tracy tried to back out of the film that would come to be called Bad Day at Black Rock, on the grounds that he couldn't act in the heat on location in Death Valley. His request to move the location was denied, and he did the movie. After that, he had some cancerous growths removed from his face, and while the scar was very fresh, he was pushed into production on a film called Tribute to a Bad Man, which was shooting on location in Montrose, Colorado, at a very high elevation. 
Again, Tracy complained that he wasn't physically strong enough to work under these conditions, and again he was told to suck it up. Once on location, Tracy told director Robert Wise that they would have to move to a lower elevation or replace him. And they replaced him. Tracy's date book, where he'd record his activities and alcoholic slip-ups, contained one word for the next day. Gin. Tracy's relationship with MGM was over. He had been on the cusp of a contract extension at the time, and after the altitude sickness incident, it didn't happen. He and Hepburn made Desk Set, an office romance for which they were both a little too old, at Fox. Tracy got his Old Man in the Sea movie, finally, which would earn Tracy another Oscar nomination. He'd in fact be nominated for almost every movie he made over the next decade, including Inherit the Wind, Judgment at Nuremberg, and his final film with Hepburn, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. By that point, both Tracy and Hepburn had been off the screen for years. He had suffered a variety of health problems in the interim, was officially diagnosed with heart disease and diabetes, and was attended to during this time by Calf, who moved into her lover's house for the first time for the purpose. He had a prostate operation in 1965, which didn't go well. Within a week, he had slipped into a coma. But he recovered, and in 1967, he agreed to star with Kath and Sidney Poitier in what director Stanley Kramer was calling a comedy of miscegenation. Kramer had to mortgage his own salary to ensure the notoriously weak Tracy for the film. Spence struggled to keep his energy up, but the crew and cast worked around him. A few weeks after he wrapped his part in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Spencer Tracy dropped dead in his kitchen. His heart, as Kath would put it, just stopped. Bang. The box broke. She found him and called the doctor, who called Louise. Ten months later, Katherine Hepburn would win the Best Actress Oscar for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. As usual, she didn't attend the ceremony. She was in France making a movie. Her housekeeper called her to give her the news. When she heard, Kath asked... Did Mr. Tracy win it, too? When she was told no, she said, Well, I'm sure mine is for the two of us. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Y-M-R-T. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. This episode was edited by Henry Malofsky, and our research intern is Ali Gemmel. Special thanks to our special guests. Steve Zissis played Spencer Tracy. Kelly Marcel played Catherine Hepburn. And Craig Mason returned as Louis B. Mayer. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com, where you can contribute future episode ideas and have discussions about past episodes in our forum. And you can also find show notes for every episode, including lists of sources from the research process. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and please subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher and rate and review us. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. I love dancing, crazy romancing, fellas advancing constantly. Marriage is for old folks, old folks not for me. One husband, one wife, what do you got? Two people sentenced for life. 